Kissing is uniquely human. More than half of all societies kiss on the lips. We kiss for love, for luck, to say hello and goodbye. There's also the whole it feels good thing. It's an attack on the senses. Our lips in terms of sensory neurons are loaded. Kissing can be a mind, body, and soul experience. And when it's all said and done, does it not lend way to measuring sexual compatibility? A lot can be determined with a single kiss. And it's personal. It's one of the most affectionate acts we can share with another. Not only does kissing feel good, but it's good for you. Studies show that kissing has health benefits as well. Kissing can lower blood pressure, it burns calories, and even relieves headaches and cramps. And one study shows that those who kiss their partner before parting ways every morning before work had fewer accidents on their commute, earned 20 to 30% more money a month, and lived five years longer than those who did not. But the most notable effect is that kissing prompts your brain to release a happy elixir of feel-good chemicals like serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin. If done right, it's a high that compares to heroin. And oxytocin is the love hormone. When kissing, it stimulates the part of your brain associated with sex and romance and aids in attachment and bonding. This powerful release of chemicals coursing through your body while lost in the lusty act can leave you feeling like it's a true love's kiss. And it's just something we do, isn't it? It's everywhere. We come to know it before we even understand it. Our parents kiss us and they kiss each other. We kiss our friends. It's in our fairy tales, books, and paintings and appears in essentially every movie, at least all the ones I've seen. Kissing has been woven into the fibers of our lives. Some say kissing is a primal instinct, tracing all the way back to our earliest ancestors to attract a mate long enough to produce a tiny human and raise it to do it all over again and populate the world. Others say it's a learned behavior since there are some cultures that do not kiss in a romantic sense and some cultures that don't kiss at all. Whatever the case, I cannot imagine a world where kissing does not exist. Welcome to Deviant History, where our curiosities take us back in time to uncover our salacious past in the beginning of something deviant. I'm your host, Alexandra Noel. I'm grateful no matter how the kiss I've come to know and love came to be, and delighted to find that the first to go down in history was recorded in 1500 BC. It was just a hint of a kiss and the first to be described as a gesture of affection and tenderness between lovers with the purpose to turn each other on. And that was all it took. There was no denying the instant gratification brought on by the sensual touch of the lips. It was enough to want to do it again and again to absolutely perfect it. Born from the ancient custom of sharing one another's breath, this particular kiss was recorded as rubbing and pressing noses together. I'm compelled to think about my first kiss, the boy crazy girl that I was. It was something I daydreamed about often, far too often. 
I always romanticized my first kiss in my daydreams, thinking it would be something out of the movies, the only reference I had. They were romantic and full of passion, not the awkward experience that most of us cringe in reflection. For me, it was a summer afternoon. Everyone was out on the street riding bikes and playing hide and seek. I had this crush on one of the neighborhood boys and as the seeker was counting down, we hid behind the same tree. It wasn't a very big tree. We were pressed together face to face and I said, let me kiss you. I was shocked when he stuck his tongue in my mouth. I'm not sure what I expected, but it wasn't that. He told me it was a French kiss and I kissed him back. It was incredibly clumsy, neither one of us really knowing what we were supposed to do. But practice makes perfect, and almost a thousand years after the first kiss was written into our history, and with plenty of time to master it, enter the Kama Sutra around 400 BC. We have all come to know it as the ultimate sex guide, but there are over 200 passages devoted just to kissing. It explores different techniques such as lip biting or licking the upper lip of your lover. It teaches that there are four kinds of kissing, moderate, engaged, pressed, and soft, and depending on what part of the body you're kissing, which one you should use. And of course, it covers the spots on your lover in which you should kiss to bring pleasure, such as the forehead, eyes, cheeks, throat, thighs, and of course the lips, because before this, people just weren't exploring their bodies and their lovers' bodies in sensual ways like this. And there were entire worlds out there still in the dark. What a tragic time to be alive. Until, of course, the Kama Sutra turned kissing into an art form. You see, the Kama Sutra was more than just a sex manual. It was a self-help book with the first chapters devoted to one's professional life and how to conduct oneself to gain respect, but also how to have a social life and how to talk to women, not only talk to them, but fall in love and marry. And it's then that the Kama Sutra transitions to the more popular chapters and teaches couples less traditional views on sex and pleasure one of my favorite kisses in the Kama Sutra is called the kiss that turns away. I'm guilty of using this one habitually. It's said that when you are feeling needy because your partner is engaged in work or otherwise involved in something other than yourself, you should kiss them with one of the many lusty techniques provided to get the attention you seek. Another one I'm guilty of using is called the transferred kiss. So this specific kiss is one-sided. Say you have a photo of your beloved or your city center has on display a great statue of a goddess and maybe it's your JTT poster. The point is you kiss the image in hopes it will be felt by the intended and their mind turns to you. It was relatively exclusive to the area until Alexander the Great. The conquest of Punjab in 326 BC popularized kissing in the Western world. His soldiers spent time with the local women where they would most certainly enjoy their company and engage in new and exciting lovemaking. I have no doubt those women blew their mind among other things. And these men would then bring home their newfound knowledge and skills where it would take off and spread like wildfire.
It's no surprise to me that we would find any reason to kiss, mostly under the guise of fun and games. If it's innocent, then your reputation stays intact, and it must have been enjoyed by the masses because many of these games went on to become traditions we still practice today. Being a fairly superstitious population, the early kissing games were built on the fate of the couple. No one would bat an eye as the young adults indulged in what would otherwise be quite a scandalous deed. A kiss for good luck could not be denied when the stakes were high. Without securing a kiss from your sweetheart, you were surely doomed. And what a clever way to evoke love by making your beloved your good luck charm. How could one refuse that? Perhaps this was a kiss goodbye before embarking on a dangerous journey or going off to war or any difficult challenge before you. I've given many good luck kisses. And the superstitions that fuel these reasons to kiss endure. We begin to see party games becoming more attractive. A New Year's Eve kiss is a perfect example. The buzzing excitement of counting down from 10 with the one you adore. And when the clock strikes 12, you kiss, bringing in the new year. Because failing to kiss someone at midnight ensures a lonely year ahead. And perhaps my favorite festive matchmaker, kissing under the mistletoe. The Christmas time tradition where halls were decked with holly and mistletoe hung Young lovers might find themselves underneath where a kiss was the only way to ensure luck in love. You could also present your sweetheart with a twig of mistletoe, receiving a kiss for each berry, plucking them off one by one until they were gone and the game was over. It was not yet lost on the people of this time, the rich pagan influence on Christmas time festivities, and the origins of kissing under the mistletoe can be found in Norse mythology. It's the story of Baldur, god of light and son of Frigga and Odin. He begins to have dreams where he prophesizes his death, and Frigga, concerned for her son, sets out to protect him. The gods hold a council and charge Frigga with the task to secure Baldur against every danger. Frigga sets forth to the Nine Realms and takes an oath from fire and water, metal, stone, and earth. She spoke to ferns and great oaks, sought out sicknesses and poisons. She made deals with wolves, birds, and all creeping things, obtaining from each of them their word that they would not hurt Baldur. When this was finished, Baldur was regarded as invincible. So the gods thought to entertain themselves with a little fun and to celebrate Baldur's safety. They placed him in the middle of the room to test the new untouchable. Some shot at him, others took up swords, and some threw stones. But whatever they did, nothing would hurt him. Everyone was happy and satisfied with this. Except for Loki, the god of mischief. He was jealous of his half-brother and annoyed with the favor he was shown. So Loki went in disguise of an old lady to Frigga. She told him that the weapons of the gods could not hurt Baldur since she had made them all swear not to bring him any harm. Loki inquired if indeed all pledged to spare her son. She answered that east of Valhalla grows a plant called mistletoe and that it seemed too young to swear. Frigga overlooked the unassuming plant and it proved to be a grave mistake. 
Loki made haste to earth and plucked the mistletoe from a tree. He brought it back to the assembly of gods, where he found the blind god Hodor standing away from the others. Loki asked why he didn't shoot at Baldur. Hodor answered that he could not see where he stands and has no weapon. Loki encouraged him to do like the rest and show Baldur honor in the same manner. Loki fashioned a dart with the mistletoe and he was ever so helpful positioning the blind god. He instructed him to shoot at Baldur and gave him the twig. Hodor took the mistletoe-laced dart and threw it at him. The mistletoe struck Baldur, piercing him through the heart. He fell down dead before the council, and for a moment the gods stood speechless, unable to comprehend what just happened. Then the reality hit that their beloved Baldur was gone. Frigga, devastated, proclaimed that mistletoe would never again cause harm and she would place a kiss on anyone who passed underneath. The hanging of mistletoe and its association with Frigga, the goddess of love, embodies just that. And the kissing games continued, finding new and creative ways to lock lips. One early 20th century charitable cause promised a kiss upon your donation. Church fundraisers and organizations alike would set up kissing booths at a local fair, promising a kiss for every dollar. And the men would line up with their bills to buy a kiss for a good cause, of course. It was a popular event, beaming as the main attraction in many cases, with one newspaper advertising their oscillatory favors. And one article from 1918 reads, all the horrors of war disappears for the man with a roll of bills at the Red Cross kissing booth, that is, till his wife sees him. And while my dream of becoming the main attraction in a kissing booth at my local fair never came true, I did get to spend seven minutes in heaven. By the time I was interested in kissing games, they had evolved. We played games like Spin the Bottle and Suck and Blow, my favorite. And for those of you not familiar with this game, you would place a playing card on your lips. And the objective is to suck the card to hold it until you reach the next player. And when you reach their lips, you blow the card while they suck to secure it for the next player. And to my delight, if the card fell in an unsuccessful pass, you just might get the chance to plant your lips on your crush. I have to confess, I was never good at that game, always dropping the card. The liberated youth emerging from the First World War stripped themselves of the repressed sexual views of their strict Victorian parents and pushed the social norms in nearly every way, including kissing in public. Sexual tension was in the air. The men coming back from war wanted more out of life and the women wanted one. For the first time in history, women were breaking social expectations by the masses. These dangerous women drank alcohol, danced in jazz clubs, smoked cigarettes, and, with great shock, indulged in erotic liberties. The desires of this young population created the fad known as petting parties. It was an especially popular pastime for those that attended college where there was more freedom to explore their sexuality. It was something of a phenomenon that spread coast to coast with each region adopting their own slang. 
In the South, they called them necking parties, and in the West, mushing parties. They varied in some ways, but no matter what, one thing remained the same. You kissed a lot. It was a safe way to experiment, as there were self-governing limitations that participants adhered to, and doing it in a public setting helped to tame the fires. Your typical petting party would consist of several couples. They would hide away in a dark corner of the room or find an empty hallway, occasionally even sitting next to another couple on a couch. But it was not limited to college dorms. The night scene of the Roaring Twenties embodies the very image of women liberations. Flappers were notoriously loose and wild. On any given night, you could walk into a dive and find the crowd full of women in short dresses, getting drunk, and even perhaps sitting in their date's lap, kissing and laughing the night away. The women who enjoyed these parties often referred to themselves as snuggle puppies, and they even nicknamed the men who didn't participate as flat tires. Petting parties shocked the nation. It was still a time where value was held in a woman's reputation. And this kind of behavior, just a few short years before, would have assured a tarnished reputation not only for the individual, but their entire family. And in some cases, an immediate marriage was demanded just for being seen kissing in public. The older generation couldn't cope. It was a nationwide crisis. Police were called to raid the petting parties on campuses, Laws were enacted to help control the deviant behavior, and mothers were up in arms, fearful for their sons and daughters. Places like movie theaters and drive-ins were cracking down on the petting parties. Police would be enlisted to break up any makeout sessions. There was a frenzied attempt to restore conservative values, but once this was in motion, there was no going back. But, like most fads, petting parties became less popular nearing the end of the 1930s. Mostly because the youth of the time normalized public displays of affection like kissing and there was no longer a need. They changed the course of history, altering views on things like sexuality, and continued to do so as the old generation faded and their virtues became less attractive. If you enjoyed this episode, please show it some love. You can find me on Facebook. Look for the group Deviant History and let me know what you think. And of course, you can listen to Deviant History wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.